Hello, and welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with AEI president Robert Dorr, we'll be your Banter co-hosts. Each week, we'll take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers about today's pressing policy issues. Thanks for tuning in. Joining us on Banter today is Ben Ippolito, who's a senior fellow with us at AEI, where his research focuses on public finance and health economics. He studies healthcare financing, the pharmaceutical market and its regulations, and the effect of healthcare costs on personal finances of Americans. He's been published in a variety of peer-reviewed academic and policy journals, and he, his analysis has appeared in popular media. He's also testified on his research before Congress. Ben has a Ph.D. and master's in economics from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and a bachelor's in economics and mathematics from Emory University. Thanks for joining us on Banter, Ben. Thanks for having me. Phoebe, your intros are still too long. Still? I mean, yeah, what I mean, would you I mean, cut? My God, do we have to hear about his like third grade seconds. degree? <laughs> uh, I know he graduated from college. Time. Now, today we have, we're have we going to do a little more bantering than we normally do on Banter because Banter is, is a very mature high-level public policy discussion, but but we've got a couple things going on here that deserve a little attention that may not count as, as high-level, uh, mature public policy discussion. The first is that our producer, Olivia, who's done such a spectacular job, is leaving. This is her last uh, podcast for us, and we're going to miss her terribly, and she's moving to Boston. She's Loves AI, no problem with AI or this podcast, which is nurtured. <laughs> so we are not we, why she's we're leaving. not why she's leaving. At least I don't think so, but I'm pretty sure. Uh, so we have to commemorate that. Phoebe, do you want to say any words about Olivia as a, a positive remark or just a chuckle? She makes banter happen. We appreciate and, it. And like a good producer, she doesn't talk either. So she doesn't <laughs> have a microphone, so she's being quiet. Uh, so that's one. The second is is that I've been doing this podcast with Phoebe, you know, for some time, and I've always had a little hard time placing Phoebe's character and her qualities and why does she remind me of of somebody and I finally figured it out what is it it's she is she reminds me of Winona Ryder portrayal of Joe in Little Women which is about 15 years old and I urge you all to go back and watch <laughs> I have that, to put that one on the, I, <laughs> I think we're both going to have to put that on yeah. it's one of the great movies it is a great movie it's a great movie and Winona Ryder is very good in it yeah, but she has a kind of skeptical roll, uh, rolling of the eyes quality. Yeah, I think the eye rolling is what, is rolling. what you mentioned yes, to yes, me yes, as yes, like yes. the comparison. And uh, we love Poor that about trait. we love that about Phoebe, and we love that about uh, Winona, Winona Ryder as Joe, who's really the person we love. All right, Ben. With that said, with that said, <laughs> um, so you're a healthcare policy wonk expert here in Washington. And so uh, let's just look forward to two or three years from now and ask you, what is it about the healthcare policy world in the United States that you aspire to change uh, over the next two years? What do you want to make better? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's another way of thinking about this question of, of what, is the, what is the headline problem? Right. Yeah. And uh, well, of course, you're fa- you're facing the, you're, you're tackling the toughest problem. Well, of course. I, and I do think there's this there's this interesting feature of healthcare where it's such a big part of the economy. It's 20 percent of GDP. Right. We spend four trillion dollars a year on it. It's it's in the intersection of public uh, public sector and it's the intersection of private markets. And it has this intensely complicated institutional environment that generates tons and tons of little problems. But if you kind of think about unifying across those problems. I think the main thing for me is cost. Everything is more difficult because of the cost of healthcare. 
when you're talking about $4 trillion, obviously that means we're spending a lot of money in a lot of places, but it sort of underlies all of the major problems that, or many of the major problems that I think people focus on. Medicare and Medicaid strain state and federal budgets because they're so expensive, right? Uh, wages don't grow as fast as we tend to think they really should because the cost of the insurance that your employer is giving you keeps getting more and more expensive and they have to deal with that when they think about paying you. Uh, it makes it makes every time you want to do something like give more people health insurance, it's that much more expensive because the health insurance is buying really, really expensive care. And so when you think about at least at a high level, like conceptually, what's yeah. the big okay. theme? I'm it's cost. That. I'm loving that. I'm loving that. That's the big problem. It's and it's a, it's internationally. It you know you can probably in your sleep quote how much more healthcare costs us than than it does in other parts of the world. Is a that lot, true? A lot more. A I, lot I, more. It's not even close. I will say I don't love. I I think sometimes people overstate these cross country comparisons because we're often comparing you know a little tiny Denmark with an enormous heterogeneous you know uh, uh, United States that's geographically dispersed and it's it's got different types of populations and socioeconomic issues and so on. But with that said, there's no question that we are an outlier when it comes to cost. So we've had scholars at AI who've been talking about the high cost of healthcare for a long time. And I, I don't know. It doesn't look like they're having much luck. Why are you going to be different? Why are you going to be better? Well, I'm, I'm but one man, and I'll do what I can. <laughs> but but one uh, man can do so much. Well, I, I mean. a great idea. Yeah, there's no question. I think there's the, the you know, in some sense, it's, it's easy to point to the core problem. It's, it's expensive, right? And that, that creates problems for whatever you're trying to achieve. It just, it just makes everything more, more, more difficult. But as we often say, you know, one person's cost is another person's income. It's very, very difficult to lower costs, even when you do stuff that I think generally uh, strikes people as relatively sympathetic. So I'll give you an example. Uh, for the last couple of years, I've worked on this issue of surprise medical bills. This is a really sympathetic issue for most people. So the canonical example here is you get hit by a car and an ambulance picks you up and takes you to an emergency room. You have no choice over what's happening. You end up in an emergency room that doesn't accept your insurance. And because of that, which you have no choice over, you have this liability to be exposed to what we call balanced bills, but just think of it as being really large out-of-network bills. Your insurance isn't accepted at that location. That's really, really sympathetic, and it's a case where it leads to cost inflation because those places now have a lot of pricing power because there's no choice. So we've worked on that issue for years. Well, even in that case, it is extremely difficult to craft a legislative solution that is plausible in terms of getting passed that at all reduces costs, right? The best you can often do is do something that kind of maintains the status quo and maybe slows down the rate of growth of those, those services over time. And so I think that sort of encapsulates the problem. It's really, really difficult to lower costs. And I think it's particularly important. I, I think this is something you understand, but a lot of actors in healthcare are really sympathetic to the typical voter and to policymakers. So in particular, when you survey people, the, the number one, I think, is always nurses. People love nurses. But then it comes your doctor, and people really like their hospital. And then you go down the list, and people really start disliking. They don't like insurance companies. Anything that can be branded as a middleman, they don't really love those. And then drug companies are like the third circle of hell. You know, those are the, those are the things that people really but on dislike. But on the difficulty of fighting something that you can actually do to address the issue, I was at a dinner last night with a someone who is a former CEO of a major healthcare company. She's now out of it. And she said emphatically, the healthcare industry, the healthcare public policy making process in Washington and in the States is entirely captured 
by interests that are um, powerful because of their spending on lobbying and other influence. Is that why it's so hard? Because you run up against just a, a, a bought and sold, bought and paid for um, legislative branch? I think So I think that's, I, I would combine that with what I was just saying, where it's a combination of a bunch of these actors not only are spending a lot on lobbying, and it's not just lobbying, right? It's it's that hospitals and doctors are really, really important in terms of employment and economic activity in a lot of districts. They're really, really important to policymakers. Then you add on top exactly what you're talking about, right? Really aggressive lobbying, and everyone's kind of sympathetic to many of these actors. Suddenly, it becomes really, really difficult for somebody to come out with a bill that envisions slashing prices that that you know hospitals command, for example. So I think they all kind of add together. So. So you're going to devote the next two years of your life or five years of your life to reducing healthcare costs through the, the quality of your research and your efforts to get that research into the public policy discussion. We love that. That's a great, great thing to devote your life to. Where do you think specifically there's the most, the best chance for success? Where do you, where, or, or the biggest dollar amount or just the dollar amount you know best where it's so obvious that, that this is one I think I can win on? Yeah, so I guess maybe maybe two things. The first is that you know you need to start with a general understanding of like where do we spend money in the first place, and that's one of the things where I think people often misallocate uh, the healthcare dollar. They tend to overemphasize things like uh, like I was talking about drugs and insurance companies. I think part of that is because they tend to uh, resonate less with the average person, and so I think they seem a little bit more expendable. But you know the biggest categories of spending are are hospitals and doctors yeah. by far, and so if you want to save any meaningful amount of money, you need to do something in those areas. And to be clear, I'm not saying you should only do, you know, one or two areas. Whole hog is, is I'm all in, but, yeah. but you do, you can't do it where you only target a couple small pieces of the healthcare dollars. Well, there's it. a fairly simple way in the government to reduce costs to hospitals and doctors, and that's just reduce reimbursement rates for Medicare and Medicaid. Yeah. So that's one option. I would honestly say in terms of unit prices, Medicare and Medicaid, that's not the biggest issue. I would say that the federal government's sort of first order effect on expenditures that I worry the most about myself is the fact that we have this really cohesive strategy where we subsidize healthcare purchasing and we do almost nothing to curtail the costs on the back end. So, for example, your employer-sponsored insurance is all uh, tax-exempt. So no matter how much that's worth, you're allowed to compensate your employees. Yeah, but Ben, Republicans and some smart Democrats have been trying to change the tax cover, tax treatment of employer-covered health insurance for 15 years. And every time they do it, they then take it back at the last minute. It's not going to happen. Well, it might not. That one's, I mean, that one's like, you know, that's like I, I'm for this, therefore I'm for lower costs through this elaborate way of doing it. But I also know it'll never work, so I don't have to take on the interests. Well, so that's part of it, but I, w I guess one of the responses would be then, well, very large wholesale reductions to reimbursement rates would then seem very implausible. Is an, is a is reaction to that? Is is that is actually more implausible? I mean, the the one that the the group that you hurt with the changing of the tax treatment are all of the employees, all of the workers like me. You suddenly imposed a tax increase on on my compensation package, right? That's what the tax treatment is. So that's everybody. The one you hurt with a, just a slash and burn on Medicaid and Medicare re, re, uh, reimbursement rates is this industry you say is, is fat and happy. Why, yeah. why is that harder to do than the one that you have tried to do for 10 years and can't do? Well, I guess I would, I would back up a little bit. And 
put a little bit of framing around this question in terms of prioritizing where I think we ought to be focusing on trying to reduce, if, if your concern is reimbursement rates to, for example, no, providers. Costs. Yeah, and, and, and reimbursement. How do I get a cost? And reimbursement rates is a number one in terms of, of this issue, so no question about that. When you look at the reimbursement rates that hospitals get, um, there's a huge difference at this point between what a private insurer pays yeah. and what yeah. Medicare and Medicaid pays. So a commercial insurer, on average, is going to pay something like double what Medicare pays to the hospital. Okay, let's try that one. Why, yeah. don't, we, why don't we regulate those and say you can't pay any more than 10% above the Medicare Medicaid premium? Yeah, so that's exactly right. And that's where I think when you think about... Did you hear that? He said it was exactly right. When you think... <laughs> we're for that? No, when you think oh, about... Tar- <laughs> when you think about targeting... When you think about targeting... Where you, you, you raised a question earlier where you said, you know, if you were to try and identify what are some prices that really worry you or where do you think there's a lot of fat to cut? I think a lot of people look at the commercial market and how much it pays for a variety of services. Hospital is a good example, but not necessarily unique, um, where it's hard to come up with a justification for some of the prices. Right. And I think there's different strategies for what do you do about that? Right. There's I'll, I'll put them in two big camps. There's one, which is there's something wrong with this market that's supporting unusually high prices. And I'll be clear. I don't think all the high prices are bad. I think it's great. If you've got something great and you get a high price for it, great, great on you. Yes. But we're concerned that there's a bunch of high prices that aren't really supported by that. So an example would be we've allowed a lot of consolidation in the hospital industry. And so if there's only one show in town, that one hospital can command a tremendously high price regardless of, of what the quality yeah. might be and so on. That's a great example of a true market friction that we think we're getting a high price that doesn't reflect a lot of quality. And it's not incentivizing that, that hospital to try and get better or lower their costs or anything like that, right? So I think when a lot of people look at this, there's, there's two options for that kind of situation. One is change the incentives that's leading everybody to consolidate in the first place so that you, you sort of nip the actual problem in the bud. Or the alternative is to say, well, kind of let it happen and then regulate the prices that emerge from that after the fact. And by the way, the, the, the first one is very hard to do. Second, Second hard one to do. is what we've done. We've let it happen. I mean, well, so, yeah, so I, I would say that the, the state of the world is such that you know, where most of the population lives, there's some reasonable level of competition. There's definitely markets where it's very consolidated at this point yeah. on the provider side and to some extent on the insurer side as well. Um, and you think about a rural area. At a certain point, how many hospitals are you going to support? I agree. I mean, right? I, I thought consolidation was going to lead to reduced costs because it was going to drive out excess healthcare, you know, facilities. Yeah, so that was a, that was a classic theory back in the day. There was a lot of worry about uh, what used to be called supply supply induced demand, where if you if you build a hospital, well, you're going to fill the bed somehow. You know, that was the concern. But I'll say, I think it's it's useful to note that there's this historical point. You know, you've talked about uh, kind of there's a long history of of efforts to regulate the healthcare industry. Well. In the 80s, uh, 70s and 80s, there was a very long history of states regulating commercial market payments to hospitals, including New York. What New York I, what, was a very the, famous example. What I example. brought up was is yeah. the, is the, why not just say you can't pay more yep. than an X percent above the Medicaid or Medicare reimbursement for that, that service. And yep. that way you, you're forcing them to, to, to accept less and pay less. Yeah, so there's no question that, well... At least conceptually, there's no question that you can lower how much somebody spends. I think the concern or the worry is, are you going to lower rates in, in sort of, quote, unquote, the right way? And I think there's a lot of people who look at the Medicare that doing that essentially assumes that Medicare has, has come up with a reasonable price schedule. Yeah, I can look, I want to be clear because I am at AEI. I'm not for heavy handed government deciding this is what you missed to do. I want a market solution 
to the cost of healthcare in the United States. The problem is it isn't going to happen. It hasn't happened. We've tried so long at this. All we've got left is using the instruments of the I think government. I would be a little bit more optimistic than that. I think healthcare is sometimes characterized as being a little bit more stagnant than it it really is in reality. So a lot of things that used to be provided, for example, in hospitals 25 years ago are routine uh, outpatient things that are done in clinics right now, right? You go and get a hip done in a way that's completely different than 25 yeah. years ago. And so I don't want to give up on the idea that this industry changes, technology changes, and we can think about if that kind of thing happens, it's much easier to imagine expanding supply, right? When, when suddenly something can be done in a clinic. Okay. But that's your point. I think you're speaking to something that a lot of, I'll say constructive people in this space recognize, which is that there's a complicated world where there are some markets and there are some problems where it's probably the balance of evidence suggests that we can really change, that we can improve this market if we fix some of the problematic incentives here. And there are some markets where either it's a rural area and just not going to be that many hospitals that exist, or it's a, it's a market where we've let a lot of consolidation happen in this, keeping with this example. And it's hard to come up with a, a way to sort of break up, you know, a big hospital, for example. And so you, you, you can reasonably say, hey, you might have different responses in those cases. You might embrace trying to change the incentives and train, change the way the market functions in, in New York City because it's a bunch of competition around. But you might not want to do that in a case where you've only got one hospital left. So you, um, <clears throat> in your, uh, Phoebe may have alluded to an introduction, if you listen closely, um, just our listeners might be interested. Some of our scholars come to us after careers in public policy. Sometimes they come to us after careers in journalism and writing. And sometimes they come to us as after establishing large reputations in the academy. And then others, <laughs> in the case of Ben, walking off the street, come in, come in and are just recently minted PhDs in a field and are really, really brilliant and wonderful and and hard charging and want to change the world and would rather be here, working on research that has a potential to influence public policy outcomes tomorrow and next week and next year. And so Ben made that choice in his career. He could have gone to you know, Stanford or Harvard or Berkeley and been a, you know, tenure track professor in the economics department, but he chose here. And I want to just give us a sense in that, with that, you know, with that um, uh, preliminary, and I hope you feel that that was a fair characterization of your career choice. Could you tell us how the, how's that going? Yeah. And do you feel like you made the right choice and do you feel like you're having an impact? Yeah. So I think the, um, the way I viewed that choice coming out of graduate school was there's a very academic route you can go. You can also, there's other routes too. There's, there's consulting firms, there's government and so on. And then there's something like AI. And the way I think about AI is a person like me plays a role that for me is great in, in sort of the legislative or the uh, process where you essentially get to, get to engage in academic research, but you engage in research in a much more applied and much more targeted manner where you're saying, I'm trying to work on things that have direct application to something that I know is going to be an issue on the Hill, or I know is going to be an issue with the agency. And so lo and behold, when those issues start coming up and they're looking around for somebody who can help them understand what is the, what do we know about this? What did the data say about these things? Help our staff, you know, you know, get, get a little bit smarter about this, help our members understand this issue so that when it comes time to actually enter the true full-on legislative process. When you start having the American Hospital Association and the drug companies and the insurance companies knocking on your door, you're in a much more informed place 
uh, uh, to sort of have those conversations. There's a lot of other ways in which I think uh, somebody like me has an impact. But yeah, so that's interesting because he he, you know, see, he he talked about discovering facts in his research that didn't necessarily have a, a particular edge one way or the other on the public policy outcome. You weren't trying to. It wasn't about doing research that built a case for A. You're talking about research that just informed the the, the discipline. So give us an example of something where you're, you, you found something, uh, maybe a statistic that's now quoted all over. Whatever anybody talks about, uh, you know, the favorite statistic in healthcare is X percent of all healthcare costs go to the last 30 days of people's lives. Yeah. You have a statistic like that that you, create, that you found? Well, so, I mean, I, I would say that there's a, there's a couple areas in which I would say there's a sort of direct link between some of my most academic work, the most technical stuff, and, and some of the work on the Hill. So a good example is that surprise medical billing. Uh, world where a lot of what the research there did was help people understand, um, look, there really is a problem here. And I know that sounds sort of silly, but like really convincing somebody that there's a problem here. And when I say there's a problem here, I'm not just saying that like, you know, somebody's unhappy with the way this world's working or something like that. I mean, here is, you know, the economic rationale for why we think this part of the market might not work right. Here's the empirical evidence that's consistent with that theory. And here's a precise example that you can take to your member that you can explain exactly how it is that this is a real genuine issue that's worth their time. So here's an example. So, so the whole idea of surprise medical billing is that there are some healthcare providers that a person really cannot choose. And so if you can't choose them, suddenly the market force is really blunted. You can't sort away from somebody who has a really high cost. And so what does that predict? That means that there are certain specialties that are less likely to be chosen and more likely to be chosen. We think that the ones that are less likely to be chosen are more, are they're, they're likely to set their prices really, really high to take advantage of the fact that people are going to show up on their doorstep and not be able to say no, right? They're abusing their role. And so what do we see? You look down the list and the research shows it's emergency doctors, uh, air ambulances. Talk about a place with inelastic demand, air ambulance, a helicopter picking you up, right? Uh, anesthesiologist. If you go give birth, you can pick an in-network hospital, an in-network OB, and you can't pick the anesthesiologist, right? What happens? The anesthesiologists are all setting really high list prices. Same with your radiologist. You've never picked a radiologist. Well, you identified the reason why these surprise bills were so high had to do with the absence of any kind of choice. That's exactly right. And, and that's, that, that's something maybe the people on the Hill didn't understand. Yeah, that's but it's exactly not right. the avariciousness of the particular hospital. It's not some other reason. It's just that this thing is is locked in. They have no choice. There, there are incentives that differ across specialties. That surgeon faces a very different incentive. You've got to pick that surgeon. That yeah. surgeon faces a very different incentive than that person you have absolutely no choice over. And really hammering home that empirical point is something that I think really resonated. That was a big part and of that discussion. And then how do you address that, though? What, what's the legislative or regulatory thing you do to, to tell people that, they can't charge that much. So there was a lot of debate over the right way to do that. Mm-hmm. So some people thought, and I, I tended to like this this approach where we thought, well, there's one piece of this service. Let's talk about the, you know, you're giving birth and anesthesiologist gives you an epidural, right? Well, hang on. That's obviously part of that conceptual package that you're buying, right? You're going to the hospital to give birth. You might need an epidural. Obviously, that's part of what everybody thinks that service is. So why don't we just say you've got to build together? You can't do this thing oh, where yeah. you've got rogue... Like rogue anesthesiologists walking through the hallways, knocking people <laughs> unconscious, and then giving them a bill. Rogue you know, and so that was one one idea. I like that but also because you know, uh, unlike any of the three of you, I'm talking about our producer. And this, I don't want to get personal here, but I have actually had 
four children. Not me personally, oh. but my wife has. <laughs> and I've been there, and I'm very familiar with an epidural. What do you call it again? I don't know. <laughs> epidural. <laughs> epidural. And, yeah. and the effect of an epidural, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Uh, right? It is a, is a very effective. Uh, so they say. Yeah, oh, yes, it, it is. Yet, it is. But it makes life easier. But yeah, so um, the, the other idea, what ended up happening is uh, there were some folks that really liked that. Senator Lamar Alexander was one, one, yes. uh, one of the ones who liked that. Um, they ended up doing something that I find to be much more complicated, which is if there's something that frustrates me to no end, it's that the solutions to a lot of these problems, it's like the more complicated the idea, the more likely it is to be the one that wins out. But they ended up instituting uh, an arbitration process for, for these disputes. So that anesthesiologist doesn't accept your insurance. They've now got a dispute with the insurance company about what should they get paid. What everybody agreed, which is the right thing, is we're going to say, well, wait a minute. That patient shouldn't be getting a huge out-of-pocket bill. Everyone agreed on that. But what they did was they set up this arbitration process where the insurer and the provider can kind of fight it out. And, and that's created a whole bunch of legal uncertainty about how exactly the administration's chosen to implement that. There's a lot of uncertainty how it's going to evolve over time. It creates administrative yes. costs and so on. Just a mess. So, yeah. And let's talk about quality. Sure. Is the quality of the care we get as Americans, is, is, is that an issue that you work on? Not as much, but it's, it's an issue that I think underlies if you're talking about cost, you have to talk about quality to some degree, right? Because I think you'd agree that, like, if something costs a lot but it's great, well, that's fine. But if it costs a lot and it's not great, that's the problem, right? That's the, that's the inefficient spending that we really worry about. That's the, the monopoly hospital, right? There's no incentive for them to improve quality and they get to charge a high price, right? That's, that's the real concern. And so uh, to some degree, the answer is yes, but it's not necessarily a focus of mine. I will say it's really hard to compare quality across especially countries it's it's one of the things that frustrates me a little bit people don't even measure the same quality outcomes the same way but one of the things that's clear is that even within the united states there's really large heterogeneity really large variation in quality across providers even in the same area there's big variation in even the way that healthcare is is delivered across the country like there's just totally different patterns and norms in certain parts of the country give me an example well, so some places are much more, they, they're much more intensive about how they treat you. So uh, they'll do, they'll have these really interesting studies, for example, where you might study people that go on vacation. You say the same person, but they just happened to be in Florida this week because they were on vacation versus their home in Wisconsin or wherever, wherever they might live. And when you do the studies, one of the things you see is that, well, lo and behold, in, in Florida, and I'm making up the specifics here, but in Florida, if you get, you know, in an accident, they run a heck of a lot more MRIs on you. And, you know, there's a lot of theories for why. So in, in markets where there's a lot of Medicare participation, you can't command a very high price because Medicare regulates them. So what does a market do or what does a strategic actor do? Well, they might try and increase the volume of services, yeah. right? So that's the kind of theory that- My father uh, always believed that every time he went to the hospital between the time he was 80 and his death at 92, it was a racket. They're trying. They're going to do something else. They're doing something else. They're just trying to drive up that bill. Now, I'm not paying it, but the government's not right. I mean, <laughs> depending on what hospital he's at, he may have been more or less correct in that assessment. <laughs> yeah, there's no question about that. That's the kind of thing that, that I think we see a lot of. I'll tell you an interesting thing about quality. So I, you know, ran the Medicaid program in New York State, in New York City, and um, the only issue recipients of Medicaid or advocates for people that were recipients of Medicaid ever talked to me, and we had a very open-ended enrollment policy, was access. Yep. Just give me the card. They never came and complained, as, as I remember, and about quality. Yep. 
of the care provided to Medicaid recipients, which I thought was a good sign because if they're not complaining, it must not be that bad or must be pretty good. And of course, hospitals are heavily regulated. Healthcare is heavily regulated on the quality side. And because um, you talked about cost, if it costs a lot and it's good, then what's it matter? Yeah. Well, if it costs a little and it's adequate, yeah, that's yeah. also good. Yeah, of course. Is that the case with Medicaid and Medicare? We Our reimbursement rates are lower than what commercial rates pay. Is Do you think the quality of the care in those two programs is, is still good enough? Yeah, so I think there's a there's an important uh, issue that is something that I think I'm going to be paid a little a little bit more attention to moving forward. And I'll answer your question in just a second, but just yeah, for the context, okay. it wasn't always the case that commercial insurance paid that much more to hospitals than they do now. 20 years ago, it might have been 20% higher than Medicare, and now it's 100% higher or more, depending on what hospital you're at. That's a really big divergence over not a long time. And that is a, is a guy I'd never heard. And, it's, and it creates a reality that some hospitals are living in a totally different financial reality than other hospitals, right? Yes. Hospitals that, there's a great new paper that, that I was just talking to somebody about right before this, where they were, what they did was they showed that some hospitals basically target mostly commercial patients and some target more public patients. And there's some hospitals in between. Or they obviously. might just be the nature of the hospital. It could right. be a public hospital. Or, or it's whatever. where they're located yeah, is a right. great example. And so what you tend to see, it's though. the payer mix. It's exactly right. right. That is on the very, board. Yeah, I know very, the payer mix very well. And so what you see is that hospital investments in all sorts of clinical and non-clinical quality are clearly associated with the payer mix that they're they're looking at. And so part of what's happening is that if you're trying to attract commercial patients, well, they can give you a higher price if you provide something that they like, right? And so you tend to see hospitals invest in things that they think the, the patients are going to like. And so you do see higher quality at those hospitals. What you tend to see at the, the hospitals that have predominantly public uh, patients is they do a lot more to try and control costs because they can't lose money on these programs. That's their bread and butter, right? And so, yeah. And so your question, I think the way I interpret it is, okay, there's some di- difference there. Is the, is the primarily public hospital still good enough? And I don't think there's any, I've not seen compelling evidence to say that predominantly public hospitals are doing a particularly bad job. Um, I will say though, when I look at the difference in the payment rates and how much it's exploded over time, that's an issue that I think I worry more about now than I think I did five or 10 years ago. Yeah, but but wouldn't you agree that if you were going <clears> to, <throat> I mean, based on your original proposition, when we started the conversation, number one problem is cost. Yep. Seeing that diversion, you've just told us that the commercial payment rates are often 100% higher, twice the cost. That's the average. That's average. the average. So they're, they're, they're often, often, quite often five times higher. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for the commercial payer for the same procedure, whether it's paid for Medicare or Medicaid. Yep. And I, my understanding is there's a difference between Medicare and Medicaid, too. Medicare is lower than Medicaid? Medicaid. So or which one? It varies remember. a little bit over time. The distinction at this point is larger for doctor, uh, for physician services, than it is for hospitals. I think they're relatively close for hospitals, but it's a, it's Medicaid is less for, for physicians. Okay, so, so whatever. But, but let's just call that the public reimbursement yep. rates for the public programs. You, you said cause the problem, and so my theory of the way to address that would be to reduce the commercial insurance uh, reimbursement uh, payment rates. Not, because you for a moment there were hinting, well, maybe maybe the reimbursement rates for the others are so low we ought to increase them. Because that would just lead to higher costs, wouldn't it? Well, I, I mean, I don't know. I would, I would only argue in favor of increasing those, those rates if you think that there's a detrimental effect on the quality, and the quality's not good enough, right? Um, there's another way of thinking about the commercial side of things that, um, at least conceptually, 
is to say that, look, it's one thing if somebody wants to pay out of their own pocket a ton of money for something they want, but it's their own money, okay? The problem to me in, in large part is that it's not all their money. It's it's a lot of other people's money that's being spent. And so, again, I, I know you don't, you know, so so you talked about the, you talked about the Cadillac tax, yeah, as, yeah, as they yeah, call yeah, it, yeah, the, yeah. the tax uh, exemption on employer-based insurance. But you could think about different, different models that try and do something with it, say, hey, look, Federal government's going to subsidize this stuff. There's no version of the world where tomorrow we're going to we're going to end the federal subsidy of, of healthcare across all sorts of sectors. But at least conceptually, if you say we're going to put some limit somehow on what that looks like, and in fact, there's a lot of other countries where what they do is, at least in principle, they say, look, the government's going to just fund the base level here. We're going to everyone's going to have access to. You might imagine something like a Medicaid. Say you can have that, and it's not going to cost you. It's it's essentially going to be free or or a right. nominal right. fee. If you want to go to a private hospital, do it. It's your money, though. Right. It's not going to be federal money. It's got to be your money. And so as a conceptual approach, I think that's the idea. And, and we've heard people talk about that for, for markets like Medicaid. right? Medicaid right now, you're certainly well aware of this, but Medicaid right now has a, a very open-ended subsidy structure. The federal government says... I'll pay you. Pay I'll pay you at you. least fifty percent, but in a lot of states, seventy-five percent of the cost indefinitely. However much you decide to spend, I've got my bill. Right? That's the kind of that's the kind of incentive that it's very similar. Where you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. The federal government could reasonably say, we'll define a floor. We'll do, you're not falling further than this. We're going to provide these services, but if you want to have a really expansive program, then that's on you. So, what are you working on now? Uh some uh, some surprise billing, the issue that will never end. I'm working on a little bit of that. Uh, the implementation of that is is ongoing, and I think it's one of these. It's instructive for someone like me to see just how long number one that process is, and how complicated and technical it is. Well past when legislation actually gets passed, so that's really been eye opening to me. Uh, and the second thing is drug pricing. Uh, doing a lot of work on drug pricing. It's obviously been a big focus on the Hill. It's been a big focus as part of the Build Back Better uh, discussions that are still sort of ongoing. I don't no, know what no, we're calling. Ongoing. It's dead. I don't it's know dead. what we're calling it's it now. It's <laughs> whatever it might be, whatever. It's, it might not, be. it's not alive. Uh, but, 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 but I, I want to ask you about that because yeah. you, we, we introduced you as this sort of interesting kind of scholar at AI. How do you characterize your, your reputation? If you were, if you were Phoebe and, and you were, or Luke, who's in charge of government relations here, yeah. and you were going to go and tell some member or some staff member about you, what would what would you want them to say? What have you become in this role? So I think of myself as a relatively technical uh, expert on a variety of healthcare issues. Where I view my role is number one, doing research that informs issues. I'm not a I'm not here to help you message something politically. <laughs> I'm not here to tell you how, what you should do with the facts about the world. But I'm here to tell you the facts about the world. Right. You're interested in drug pricing. I'm here to tell you what we know about drug pricing, the God's honest truth of what the research has shown. What do we not know? Uh, what are the kinds of I mean, a classic one, a classic way that I'm involved in these issues is what are the potential unintended consequences that we need to think about as we start monkeying around in issue X, Y or Z? So I'm the kind of guy who I think has a a real firm grasp of the empirical data. What do we know from the research world? And what does that mean for the kinds of policies that you're considering right now? And so in some sense, I actually think of my, my role as being slightly translational, yeah. where I think part of my job is to understand what is the research, what's the latest research on all these issues? And what does that actually mean for somebody on the Hill and kind of distill it down for them? 
But it's it, it's it, the way you described it was entirely ideologically agnostic. There yeah. Was, there was no ideology in it at all. Yeah. No, I'm I'm one of I'm the scholar, one of the leading scholars on the right, or anything. And that's okay. And I'm not asking you to say that. Yeah. And you didn't say that. And I like that. But could you at least could she at least say he's doing all those things and and he's he's also coming up with interesting ideas on how to reduce costs in healthcare. Yeah, I'll say um, in healthcare, if you um, if you have any deference to any market force at all, <laughs> you're right of center in healthcare. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. There's so, no question so, about that. But so uh, oh, so you so leaving out my characterization, you you'd allow her to say that you have a tiny deference toward market. Yeah, I, I think so, and I think in in healthcare, a lot of people. There's no question about it. They get a uh, there's a lot of frustration about how messy and expensive and complicated this whole thing is. And so I think a lot of people are at the point where they're they're just throwing their hands up and saying we're giving up on this market thing. To which I say we don't have a market thing. We don't have and 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 in fairness, we don't have a centralized uh, uh, you know sort of more more um, administrative uh, program either. We have a a real weird hodgepodge of the two. And I think, you know, you've, you've spoken to this. There's, there's places where there's roles for both, you know? Uh, we started out with some idle banter about <laughs> the lovely Olivia and Phoebe, and then we didn't let them participate in the conversation, which was terrible. So Phoebe, have at it. Okay. Um, so, I mean, you just talked about kind of translating unintended consequences for policymakers. So I know you just testified on uh, some medical debt issues in the past couple of weeks. Um, and one interesting part I thought of it was um, kind of your discussion of the pros and cons of eliminating unpaid medical debt from credit profiles. Um, and that seemed like, again, one of those situations where policymakers might not be considering what implications carrying through something that sounds pretty popular would have. So I was wondering if you could walk us through yeah, your yeah, pros yeah. and cons yeah. on that. Yeah, so, Very so, good so medical debt is, uh, is an issue Another that's... one of your favorite topics. Yeah, so this is an issue I've done a lot of research on, and it's uh, it, it, it's an evergreen topic in, in healthcare for, for the same reason I think a lot of others are, which is that it really kind of irritates people that you're getting, you're going into debt. You're thinking about the, the example of that surprise medical bill example. You got hit by a car and suddenly this bill shows up and now you got debt on your credit profile? Like, give me a break. Um, so it's been a, it's been a focus, uh, for a number of years. I would say the first thing, uh, that I talked about in that testimony and I've talked with folks on the Hill about a lot is that the empirical reality of medical debt, like a lot of other issues is very different than what you see in the newspaper. I think we all see these stories about, you know, tens of thousands of dollar bills and, and those certainly happen and they're terrible when it happens, but that's not typical. When you look at, so what we did is we used a, we, we used a data set of 5 million Americans credit records. And we looked at uh, medical bills that had been sent to collections agencies. When you look at that, the typical bill is actually a couple hundred dollars. And it's not the people getting that that you might think. It's, it's the most common age is 27. And it actually falls over your life. You're less likely to get these things as you get older, um, which is sort of ironic because, of course, you're incurring so much more health care use. And so I think the first point is that it speaks to kind of a complicated problem. It's not just a health care problem, likely. It's a, it's a problem that signals some personal financial challenges. If you can't pay a hundred dollar bill, whether it's a healthcare bill or something else, there's a broader issue going on. But what, of course the, well, 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 wait a minute there, because um, your colleague, Michael Strain has been known to say uh, recently about debt in another context mm -hmm. that uh, some of the proposals that are coming from the forgive the debt crowd want to undermine the basic rule, the moral rule that if you incur a debt, you have to pay it. Yeah, yeah. You know, you have to pay your mortgage, you have to pay your health insurance premium. Yeah. 
That's a requirement of life. Isn't some of those unpaid healthcare debts caused not by people not having the money, but just refusing to pay? Just- I'll, I'll put it this way. It's entirely, a, a number of these bills are entirely consistent with totally rational behavior by people who are facing some financial constraints. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll put it to you this. If you have a car payment, you got a credit card bill, you got to maintain access to credit, you got to get to your job, you got to do all these things, you got to keep the lights on. The last thing, honest to God, the last thing you should prioritize is it's the also bill the, to a doctor from two years ago you're never going to see again. You except, know? But it's also the one that uh, the culture has been telling us you shouldn't have to pay for. Yeah, and, and it's 100% right. And if you look at the way advocacy organizations, sort of what they suggest to people, they tell them, don't pay that bill. You That is the last bill you should What's pay. What's your solution to this? Well, so the, I mean, so I, I think the, the, I'll start with what's going to happen uh, is that policymakers have basically said that, like, look, we think this is unfair. Whether or not you necessarily agree that they're all unfair or, or some of them are and so on, they're going to say, well, rather than change anything about the world fundamentally, what we're going to do is just say that you can't put these on a credit report anymore. You can't have a medical debt show up uh, if it's in collections. It can't be on your credit report. No, that's a bipartisan. It's passed. No. That was what the policymakers on the Hill, Democratic policymakers on the Hill, were essentially pressuring the credit bureaus to do and the credit bureaus uh, essentially, we were along. pressuring without legislation. Just yeah, and up. and the administration did some things administratively that were kind of buttressing that that approach, but it creates this this. Well, I still don't get your position on that. Were you supportive of that? Is that a good thing to force the credit bureaus to voluntarily agree to this new? Well, no. So this is the kind of thing that I worry about because I I think that this is what Phoebe was asking about to some degree. It's like, on one hand, it, it's really appealing. These people who currently have a medical debt on their credit profile, they're going to benefit from this. But of course, you haven't changed anything about the underlying risk of those borrowers, for example. So if a lender thought that that medical debt was a useful piece of information, they're going to respond. They know that risk isn't gone. The risk is just hidden. And so now what do we think is going to happen? We think, well, they're going to look for other things on credit reports that maybe are, are very correlated with medical collections and just put more weight on them. Add to the application. Did did you, do you have any outstanding medical debt? So that you might not be able to do, but you can do things like the data is available. I've published research on this. They know who's got more medical debt than who doesn't. So you can say, well, wait a minute. Hmm? They can find out on an individual without the credit. Oh, not a specific individual, but you can, you can, what we call statistically discriminate and say, Hey, wait a minute. People in their late twenties and early thirties who have this credit profile tend to have medical collections that I now know I can't observe. So what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to raise the cost of borrowing on those consumers, or I'm going to try to avoid some of those consumers, right? And so this is the kind of thing where if you haven't solved the underlying issue, well, everyone knows that that risk still exists. So, then so. In, so what, if, what I'm, maybe you didn't, you, you don't have a position on this, but I'm trying to decide, I'm trying to figure out, ultimately, what's your position? Should there be a government requirement that they're not allowed to put this, these debts on the credit bureau reports? Or should there not be? Yeah, so I don't think that that's a really productive solution to this one. I, I honestly, you know, when it comes to medical debt, I think it's a it's a difficult issue because in some sense it's a symptom of this broader other issue, issue that we're talking about, which is healthcare is really expensive. Even a small, tiny, fra- if a small, tiny fraction of health spending is incurred and then unpaid, you're going to have a large dollar amount of medical debt because we're spending $4 trillion on healthcare in a year, right? And so that's part of the challenge in some sense. You know, my first order, my first order point would be, well, why don't we try and lower how much some of these bills are? And you can think outside of healthcare, right? This isn't just healthcare. If it's a hundred dollar bill, and somebody is unable or unwilling to pay it, 
at some point, that is not a healthcare specific issue in my mind. Uh, and so, you know, that of course lends to an enormously broad set of policy options, but. Okay, so you've had this Washington experience mm -hmm. um, and you're in a very technical issue where often for very technical issues, there are legislators or executive branch employees who it turns out are actually very smart and very effective and very hardworking and motivated by the right desires to help their country. Can you give us a sense of your your favorite political players that you've enjoyed interacting with and you think are leading the charge on these issues or at least informing the debate in a good way? Um, at the member level or, or at anywhere? At the member level. At the member level. I mean, I'll say... more interesting at the member level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I'll say... I'll start with... Uh, not the member level, but as a group. One wow. group that I think is enormously uh, impressive is committee staff is some of the, some of the smartest folks in Washington are, you know, the key health, in my case, health policy advisors at the major committees on the Hill. Those are some of the most impressed people in part because the stuff, the breadth of issues they need to cover is so much broader than what I have to cover, right? I cover my areas and I, I go, you know, pretty deep on those issues, but these guys have to cover all of healthcare and then plus some. And so I think as a group, that's, that's kind of the group that I interact Bipartisan. with. Bipartisan. Yeah, I, that's the group I interact with the most, and I think I, I've been left sort of the most impressed by. Um, I also think there are certain committees and certain members that have stood out in my experience. That, Who's the leader in health so, policy? In yeah, so uh, I'll talk about experience a little bit before COVID, since there was a little bit more attention to some of yeah. these issues. Uh, Senator Alexander from Tennessee was one. I thought he was really excellent. Um, same thing goes for a number of members on that this one committee called the Senate Health Committee. The Senate, uh, what is it? Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions yep, yeah, I, uh, Committee, well. yeah. where there's there's a number of members who are really, really um, constructive. I think that Tim Kaine, uh, I've had a lot of constructive conversations with. Uh, Bill Cassidy is mm -hmm. Senator doctor. Cassidy. Yep, he's a doctor, and he certainly knows a lot about these issues, and I think seems to, even if you don't necessarily agree on specifics, seems to be somebody who engages in a very constructive way. So interactions with them did not increase your cynicism about American politics and I've had some of those. But not with those <laughs> not three. Those. Okay, not those. good, good, good. See, and you listeners, know, our country is okay. And you know, too, that some of the people that, you know, right before that camera turns on, boy, they are lovely. And that camera turns on and suddenly it's not so good anymore. <laughs> so this is just kind of from personal experience. But we've talked a little bit about, I think there's just generally a lot of frustration about healthcare issues and not being able to, like, compare quality or compare cost ahead of time. And... I think there's been kind of an interesting surge in some non-government, non-provider-run services like ZocDoc. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, or even like GoodRx that allow you to put in your insurance, um, like your location, first available appointments, and you can kind of do it. It makes it a lot yeah, easier yeah, yeah. to find a, get, a, get yeah, an appointment. To sort through, and it gives more power back to the consumer in a, yeah. a market that I think often you feel very disempowered. So yeah. I'm just curious if there's more things like that. Like, is that something that could make a tangible difference? Are there more non-government, um, non-policy innovations, innovations yeah. like that that could actually make the market more transparent? Yeah, and so I think the, the answer is yes, and I think those are good examples. And part of what I think you're identifying is that there's this historic challenge in healthcare, which is that 
there's uh, what we would say is information asymmetry, which is a fancy way of saying that your doctor knows more about what's going on with your health than you do because, you know, you're not a doctor. You've got a different job. And so, you know, part of what's happening. And he keeps the records and he gets right, to look at the. Right. Yeah. And so you're in this you're in this position where you don't know that much about what the, the diagnosis is. You don't know what the options are. You don't know who the heck are the referral options and so on. And so you really are in a situation where you trust your doctor to act as your agent. Right. And I think it's a really good argument to be made that, well, why does the doctor have all that control, much control? There's nothing against the doctor. I mean, it's, it's totally fine. But you ought to be at a position where you can compare a couple of reasonable options. I'll say one of the biggest challenges, and I think one of the areas where I think we've seen some improvement and that is it's critical for this to work right, is information, presentation, transparency, whatever, is good up to a point. And then it becomes uh, extremely costly and difficult to parse, right? Not everyone, even I have trouble when I look at some of these lists of like, you know, making sense of the 50 different provider options and all the different insurance options that you might have available at a large company or something like that. And so one of the things that I think is really important for these efforts is presenting information in a way that it actually generates what we want out of choice, which is people revealing what they want, their preferences, right? So we need it to be useful information. And so this is one of the things we've seen a lot of innovation on where it's like, okay, rather than give you every little detail about what an insurance plan looks like, you instead get told, well, it's a wide network or it's a narrow network, right? It's a simplify this choice set for, for people. And part of the reason that that's important is that one of the areas that we've seen a lot of research on is this issue of like giving consumers sort of indefinite amounts of choice leads to sort of choice paralysis. It leads to bad decisions because people aren't experts on this. They have other jobs. This isn't what they do every day. Right. And so I think one of the things that I view as being like the first order thing that that is key for that stuff working is presenting information in a way that it actually helps consumers make an actual choice that represents what they actually want and doesn't just generate a ton of costs for consumers to sort through. And it's so simple, but like that's such a useful, that's exactly like the kind of piece, that's a, that's a piece of information that a normal person can read a review and understand like, oh, their bedside manner is garbage. I, okay, well, I'm not going there, right? Like I, it's not that complicated. Yeah. Well, this has been a very lively conversation and we've enjoyed having you. BB, thank you. Olivia, once again, we're going to miss you. I don't know. You're irreplaceable, so I don't know what we're going to do. Thank you, listeners. See you next time. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.